Good morning, everyone. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. Um, last night I stood in a room in Washington Regional's ICU, standing vigil with a wife and then also a mother over the lifeless body of a husband and a son. Our community just this weekend um, has experienced a number of tragedies associated with traffic deaths. Um, and as I walked in to ICU and as I made my way to the room and as I watched the, the responses of the people who were dealing with phenomenal grief, um, I, wish could, I wish I could say it seemed unique, but it didn't. Um, I wish it was something that I wasn't deeply familiar with, but it's not. The words that were said, the emotions that were being expressed were all too common. And not just in ERs, ICUs, and funeral homes, hospice rooms, or gravesides. The experience of death is something that most of us deal with on a variety of levels in a number of situations every day. One of the most common and the most devastatingly felt are those that comes from relational conflicts within our own families. And this is nothing new. It's been happening ever since we've had families. The relationship of the very first set of brothers ended up in a jealous murder. This week, as we study the text, we see this familiar pattern that keeps deepening its ruts in the landscape of the human story. But there's another pattern that emerges as well. Something not quite as noticeable, but there nonetheless. It is the alternative pattern and response that we find of hope and healing. Not just to deal with the tragic consequences of hurt and death, but in a fact, a way to understand the ultimate effects of death, relational, physical, spiritual, being turned around and rehabilitated, redirected, redeemed to serve the purpose of the very thing that it claims to have ended, that of life itself. So let's look at the text this week and see if we can discern that. Pray with me if you would. Father, whether we're aware of it or not, we're surrounded by death all the time. Whether we physically sit at the bedside of a cold body or whether we experience it in hatred or injustice, abuse, neglect. And it's not easy to sit with. It's not something that we 
We don't like to be there, God. We don't like it. It scares us. But today we choose to sit with it. Today we choose to see what it is so that we can understand what it is you do about it. And what hope there is even in the midst of flatlining machines. Thank you for gathering us here this morning. Father, thank you for giving us another day here to worship, to be together, to build each other up, to grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. So those of you who are just joining us, we have started a new series where we're doing a a flyover of the Old Testament. We've started with the Genesis creation story, and now we're into the dynamics of that humanity that God has created. We've gone quickly from the first family in the garden now into a situation where the human population is spread across the planet, and we've, we've skipped over a lot of the very familiar stories, but we land in this one particular story of Joseph and his brothers. So the text comes from various places. This is a bit of a flyover of the story itself. We'll be looking at text in Genesis 37 as well as skipping ahead to Genesis 50. I'll try to keep you up as we go. But let's start in Genesis 37. It says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son born to him late in life. And he made a special tunic for him. And and we've called this various things, special colors, things like that. We really don't know from the text But what we do know is that it symbolized the favoritism that Israel had for Joseph. And we all know what that does to relationships when somebody plays favorites. How that rarely turns out for anything good. Certainly didn't for Joseph. Because when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph. And were not able to speak to him kindly. Literally, it says there that they couldn't speak to him with shalom or with peace. This act of comparing ourselves, our situations, our claims, is at the root of so much tragedy, so much of the break that we see. We see love. Think about it. Think about what that reveals in us. That when we see love shown to one person... And we don't feel that ourselves. We actually become to hate the object, the person to which that love is shown. How disastrous, how tragic it is for us that that is our tendency. Well, it goes on. Joseph didn't help his situation out much, did he? He said he had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the middle of the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright, and your sheaves surrounded my sheaf and bowed down to it. Now this is not a common curtsy bow. This is the sign that you are submitting to the rulership. This is a bow of worship. This is a bow of honoring. And believe me, the brothers understood the import of that. The brother, then the brothers asked him, do you really think you will rule over us or have dominion over us? 
Again, in this society, being first meant you were the best. Being first meant you were the favored. The oldest son, the oldest member of the house, inherited everything. And here the youngest at this time is saying, nope, I'm going to get it all. So not only is this offensive on a personal level, on a cultural level, it defies it. Now, we don't have time this morning, but we talked a lot in the teachers' meeting this week about how this pattern of God favoring the unfavorable, choosing the youngest, choosing the weakest, choosing the outcast, is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, and hopefully we'll have time to develop that some more as we go. But to suffice it to say that Joseph is making some pretty outlandish claims here. And of course, they hated him even more because of his dream, and because of what he said. So it wasn't just that he had the dream. It was the way that he presented it to the brothers. Isn't that an equal temptation, that when we are favored to lord that over, instead of using that as a, as a way of spreading that love, spreading that affection, we use it as a weapon over those who don't have it. Be clear, there are no innocent parties in this story. Now a lot of times pass, things go on, Joseph is sent out to the fields to find his brothers one day, and this is what it says. He asked a man where they are, and the man said, they left this area, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now Joseph's brothers saw him from a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the master of dreams. Get the sarcasm in their voice there. Come now, let us kill him. Throw him into one of the cisterns and then say the wild animals ate him. Then let's see how his dreams turn out. When Reuben heard this, he rescued Joseph from their hands saying, let's not take his life. Reuben continued, don't shed blood. Throw him into the cistern that is here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this so he could rescue Joseph later and take him back to his father. So there we leave the story. Act one, Joseph gets a coat and a dream, brags about it to his brothers. Act two, brothers respond. Hatred, bloodthirsty, murderous response, only mitigated by the conscience of one brother in the midst of it. Many, many, many years pass. Lots of history happens, and we get to the culmination of the story. Those of you familiar with Joseph know what happened, that he was, he was actually rescued out of the cistern by traveling slavers, sold into slavery into Potiphar's house, an entire history of being groomed and raised in the house of Pharaoh, later in Pharaoh's house, and eventually coming to run, basically being the COO of Egypt at a time. Famine strikes where Joseph's brothers are. They come to Egypt seeking help. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. They've assumed he's been dead for decades. Interactions ensue. Eventually, Israel, the father, dies, and we pick up the story there. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge, gee, you think, and wants to repay us? in full for all the harm we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father gave us his instructions before he died. Tell Joseph this. Really? Come on, guys. 
Uh, please forgive the sins of your brother and, that, and the wrong they did when they treated you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of God your father. Nice try. When his message was reported to them, Joseph wept. Then his brothers also came and threw themselves down before him. They said, here we are, we are your slaves. But Joseph answered them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now, up to this point, we've seen actions, interactions, motivations, responses that are entirely human. We are all too familiar with the showing of favoritism. We are all too familiar with being jealous. We are all too familiar with murderous responses towards one another. We're all too familiar with holding on to hurt and nursing and nurturing hurt and expecting revenge. Nothing different, nothing unique in this story so far. But now we get to something that is different, something that is radically different. And that is Joseph's response where he says, who am I to take revenge? Am I God? <clears throat> to open your hands and let vengeance and retribution go? That's not normal. That is not a normal part of our human story. And hold on, it gets even more divine. He goes on to say, as for you, you meant me, you meant to harm me. But God intended it for a good purpose, so that he could preserve the lives of many people, as you can see to this day. So now, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little children. And he consoled them and spoke kindly to them. The silence must have been terrible that day that he was thrown into the dry cistern by his brothers. Maybe it was broken by the buzzing of flies circling the empty cistern as the day wore on. Then came the silence of the night. Long after his brothers had moved on and the sun retreated slowly up the unclimbable walls of his desert prison. And I wonder if Joseph cried out. I wonder how long he cried to try to attract attention, to beg forgiveness, to plead with his brothers as they left him alone. How long did it take him until he slumped down in resignation that this was not a trick? They weren't playing with him. But they honestly were leaving him to die alone in the desert. How long did that last until the hunger became so intense and then dulled until his tongue swole in his mouth from thirst? Terminal, dissolved, deceased, shattered, hopeless, unforgivable. These are words of finality, of death, of ending. And all of us have experienced these occasions 
whether it is in the physical death of a loved one, whether it is in the incredible pain of divorce or abuse or abandonment, of being isolated, of being neglected, of not being the favored one. All of us have experienced these deaths. They sum up our finiteness and our fragility, our mortality and our inadequacy. And oftentimes these words, these situations, they come to define us. They are the things that that we take in as central to our identity with this. Probably more than most of us care to admit or even capable of being conscious of because of the pain. So what's to be done? What is to be done? I mean, more positive thinking? We need some more, hey, buck up. Come on, pull yourself together. What about a more indulgence-fueled denial? Let's find another series to binge watch. Let's find another fantasy sports team to consume us. Let's find a new hobby, a new addiction to keep us from feeling the pain. Or what about let's just become cynical. Let's just rage against the dying light, become sarcastic and cynical, cauterize our emotions so that we don't feel it in ourselves and become incapable of feeling it in others. But what if there's another way? What if there is a deeper answer yet to this situation? I would say to you that the whole scope and essence of the Christian faith bets that there is. To understand this, though, we first need to understand some foundational things. And we start to understand those foundational things here in this story, but also in different ones, about how do we see God working dead ends in the Bible and in our own stories? What, what do we see going on? Are these just morality tales that say, hey, if you screw up, you pay the price? Is it just a description that, hey, good try, but it all ultimately ends badly? Why these deaths and dead ends? Why is it described here? Well, I think what we have to understand it is it is a difficult, even impossible concept to embrace, but God is continually wanting to bring resurrection. There is no sugarcoating of the death and divorce and dead ends in the Bible because they are necessary for us to understand the power of God. These are not contrived scenarios. This is reality. We face pain and suffering and grief. We sit at the bedsides of loved ones as they die. We are served with those divorce papers, those bankruptcy papers, the cancer diagnosis. Some of the suffering we encounter is quick and shocking and blindsides us. Others insidiously seeps into our existence and holds us in its thrall for years. 
But there is no denying it is real. It is present. But that's where we see God working. That's where we see, because for something to be supernaturally healed, it has to be really sick. For something to be divinely resurrected, it has to be really dead. And for forgiveness to be really forgiveness, the offense must have truly damaged. And yet, this is in many ways what defines God. The one who, who forgives, who resurrects, who restores. If you really want to see God at work in the Bible, and you really want to see God at work in your life, look here. Look where there is the greatest hurt. Look where there is the greatest doubt. Look where there is the greatest pain. Look where there is the greatest suffering. There you will find God. That is what he does. In a way, that's what makes God, God. I challenge you this week, take a look, see where forgiveness is working in your life and you will find God. And likewise, where it is absent, see the desolation of the absence of God there. Find those things that encourage it. Stand against those things that hinder them. Do away with it. Now, I want to give a clear caveat here, a clear instruction. When we talk about forgiveness, oftentimes, we can mistakenly understand that as a pass on abuse. I'm not advocating anybody stay in an abusive relationship. I'm not advocating anybody continue to work or strive for something that that door has been closed. That's not what's being said here. But there is something necessary in this forgiving that we have to submit to even in the worst of the situations. Beyond this, we have to understand specifically how forgiveness is a key to reconciliation and shalom. Forgiveness is not just about the restoration of personal relationships, although it is very much that. But it also has much further far-reaching implications. We have to come to understand that the necessity of peace, shalom, and our personal relationships is necessary if peace is to exist further out in our communities in the world. Any of us who are, who are even the smallest bit aware of the tensions that exist in our world now the greatest refugee crisis since World War II, a political campaign filled with vitriol and mudslinging, character assassination, all kinds of turmoil, war, abuse, prejudice played out systematically and personally. Those are not separate from the unforgiveness each of us holds in our individual hearts. Shalom in a society is the collective fruit of individuals who seek forgiveness and shalom. If there is tension, if there is rage, if there is murder, if there is segregation and prejudice, that is the corporate result of individuals failing to deal in shalom with themselves and with their personal relationships around them. 
This is not just about us getting right individually. This is about all of society and ultimately the world. The connection between the lack of forgiveness and the relationships closest to us and the lack of peace in our churches, communities, and the world, it's directly connected. A powerless person working in unforgiveness is pitiable. A person with power walking in unforgiveness is a dangerous menace. And both of those things are at play. We have to see the connection. Last, we have to understand the pattern of reconciliation in the Bible. How do we understand this? What are we looking at? Well, look at any hymnal. Mike talked about the hymns I'll be singing. I would dare say that a number of them include reference to the cross. Rightfully so. But we are blind if we don't understand that that effort of reconciliation does not start on Calvary. It culminates on Calvary. But it begins in Genesis. And throughout the word, there is a repeated building of a history of God seeking reconciliation, of interjecting his presence, of offering and, yea, demanding forgiveness among his peoples. And we see it at this story. We see this, how clearly this story, Joseph's divine, as I said earlier, his supernatural response prefigures the response of Jesus on the cross. Do you hear the echo? Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God worked out for the salvation of many. Jesus, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And yet, and yet, he is offering himself is the life for the world. And this pattern is established throughout the word, but clearly, clearly here. We continue to see them today. As we consider these, Bible, these stories we see in the Bible, we need to consider the stories of our own lives, of our own communities, of our own cultures and histories. Where are the things that we have intended as evil or the things that have been intended towards us as evil? How do we begin to understand God working these things, not just for our good, but for the life of many, for the salvation of many? It wasn't just at Washington Regional that I encountered death this weekend. Jane and I visited a dear friend in Little Rock who is battling a seemingly untreatable disease that is slowly wasting her body away. As we talked and prayed, it was stunning to see the desire that she had, in her words, to be more and more like her heavenly father. It seemed to me this was especially pronounced in her desire to live reconciled, free of bitterness, free of unforgiveness. What about us? Are we going to let the offenses done to us continue to fester in unforgiveness? 
Are we going to let the offenses that we have committed, we have committed, continue to go unrecognized, unreported of, only to continue to fuel the systems and cycles of oppression and injustice and hatred and isolation? Are we going to do this? Or are we going to, with humility, grace, and supernatural courage, face the dark reality of our sins, personal and collective, while declaring the eternal truth that what we and others have intended as evil, God can yet redeem? This is the only path I see, y'all. I don't see another way. I have no idea how this works, but I know it must work. I know that is the promise that we see time and again in the histories, in the, through the dead ends and the evil that is represented in the Bible, and God continually breaking in with restoration, redemption, turning what was intended for evil into something good. And while it is clear for me to see this working out in the Word, I have a much harder time seeing it work out in my own life. I'm limited, y'all. I'm finite. I'm fragile. I don't get it. I don't want it. I don't like it. It's hard for me to see it in my own history. That's why I need these stories. That's why I need this witness. That's why I need this testimony of the Word. Because I can't put my faith in my own experience of it. I've tasted it in, in bits, yeah. And probably if I was more present to the Spirit, if I was more humble, if I was more willing to see and lay down my fear, I'd see more of it, but still it would be incomplete. But we have the testimony of the Word, and we have the testimony of each other as well. We have the testimony of our community as well to help us in this. But will we Embrace it. Are we going to lean into the kingdom where nothing is irreparable because nothing is beyond redemption? If there is any promise of the kingdom that gives me comfort, it is that. That there is nothing that is beyond repair. Because nothing is beyond resurrection. We may not see it here. I, I get that. It may not feel like it. But we believe in a God who is eternal. We believe in a God who is able. We put our faith and our trust that while we may not experience or see it here, it will be done. God will not be thwarted. His will will not be canceled that God will do and be who God says he is. And that involves the restoration and the redemption of all things. Nothing is forever dead because God is eternal and eternally resurrecting. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we contemplate these ideas and we contemplate these things. Now, whether you feel forgiveness in your heart 
or not, forgiveness is offered as represented in this table. If you are waiting until you are perfect before you approach this table, you will never approach. You will never be worthy. This is God's response to our halting, finite understanding. This table is God's yes to where we can't see a way out. This table is the triumph of life over death. That's what's represented here. So as we pray, as we continue to worship, come to this table and find life today. Come to this table and find the testimony of forgiveness, the ultimate testimony of forgiveness. Come to this table and find the ultimate testimony of what was intended as evil, God using to bring life to the world, to you, to me, to us, and to the world. Come to the table today with that in mind. Thank you for being here.